so hard to be correct 100% of the time when you're looking at market benchmarks, but understanding you've got to plug in the right data. So mm -hmm. you have to go through a lot of due diligence to make sure that your rent comps are correct. If your rent comps are not correct, your whole deal falls apart. How great would it be to buy a piece of institutional quality income producing commercial buildings? Well, now you can with Building Bits. It's not a REIT or a fund. Building Bits is a new platform for non-accredited investors where virtually anyone, regardless of income, can select a building lease to a major corporation with a guaranteed long-term lease. You can now invest in the same quality assets, which have previously only been available to institutions and wealthy individuals. Once you choose your building on buildingbits.com, you can invest as little as $500 and receive your share of the rents while Building Bits' team of real estate pros handles all the management aspects of the building. For the first time, the big corporations in America can actually start paying you. And when the building is sold in the future, the potential appreciation is redistributed to everyone so you don't just get the rental income, but also share in the upside. Best of all, since these securities are SEC qualified, they are freely tradable immediately. The $500 minimum with no upfront fees is available for a limited time. There are great properties available nationwide with major tenants, so don't wait. Go to buybits.us today and pick your property before they're all sold out of their current inventory. That's buybits.us. That's buy, B-U-I, bits, B-I-T-S, dot U-S. The SEC offering circular is available at buildingbits.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today. Anna Myers. How you doing, Anna? I'm great, Joe. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear it and you're welcome. A little bit about Anna. She is a vice president at Grow Capitus which is a commercial real estate investment company. She applies her 20 plus years experience in technology and business to finding, analyzing, and acquiring commercial properties across the US based in San Francisco, California. So with that being said, you wanna give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure, well, I actually started out, I grew up in LA, Southern California. My grandfather was basically a maverick of commercial real estate in the Southern California area. So that was kind of the fabric of my upbringing was this guy that started out flipping houses and then started buying orange groves and walnut groves and building shopping malls. So I was the youngest grandchild. So I grew up around this, all kinds of shopping malls, et cetera. So it just was something very normal for me. My father was an architect, so very entrepreneurial background. However, I went into programming because the IT industry was really taking off and I was just a great problem solver. And there were so many real estate people in my family. My dad was happy to have me go into IT as an emerging field. So I did that for about 10 years, became a systems architect and was very successful in that career. But then that industry kind of crashed in 2000. Their IT industry had a hard time. I went on as an entrepreneur, but realized I need to be careful about my future because any industry has its volatility. So I started investing in real estate as an investor and learned a lot of things along the way, had some bumps in the road. I started investing in single family and small multis, but I started investing. I live in California still. I used my technology background to do what I thought I could do to analyze markets at the time, but I wasn't very good at it. I had all these massive spreadsheets and trying to figure out the best market to be in 
and analyzing houses. And it just took me a long time to learn. We didn't have as many resources back in early 2000s as we do now. We never had Joe Fairless shows and the various opportunities that are online as we have now. So along the way, I made a lot of mistakes. And then I started really getting my groove in 2014. I had a short sale in early 2000s. So that set me back for a while. And then once I got back in the groove and educated myself, I landed in multifamily. I started volunteering to underwrite projects for a person that I was working with and learning from. That developed into a full-time gig. And then over six months, we have acquired 750 units in five apartment buildings across the United States. And very happy to be where I am now, but it's been a long road. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that. And it's nice to hear the ups and the downs because sometimes we don't get to learn from the downs from people. So I appreciate you offering that up. So let's talk about the mistakes first, and then we'll talk about the good stuff just so we can learn from both. So you said you had a lot of mistakes. So what are some specific ones just so we can learn from those? Well, being that I was investing remotely, it was much harder to do in the early 2000s. We still had fax machines and just didn't have as much information on the internet as we do now. So it was not as easy to do. So I ended up investing in Diamond Head, Mississippi. It was post-Katrina. I thought that it was a good market because the houses were kind of expensive there. It was like a golf leisurely type environment. And the rent was really good because construction people were staying there post-Katrina that were doing all of this work. And my brother, who's a forensic architect, was in the area a lot, and he found the house for me. So I felt really good about it. Well, those elements alone aren't enough to buy on. So that market changed very quickly because, one, there weren't enough jobs there. And, two, a lot of people had second homes there. And most of them were second homes. So when the economy turned there, a lot of people just abandoned their houses and the whole community just went into like a spiral. So I could not get the rents that I once. The rents turned into half of what they used to be. And I ended up having to do a short sale in order to save my primary house. I kind of had to make a decision. Am I going to be out of pocket $1,000 a month on this place and only be taking a little bit of rent or I'm risking losing my primary house? For people who aren't familiar with a short sale, will you just briefly describe what that is? Sure. It's when you are in a situation where you decide not to continue owning a property and the property is valued under the amount that your mortgage is set for. So you owe the bank more than what the property is now worth. Mm -hmm. And in order to get out of that, you can either foreclose and just walk away from it, which has a much more severe impact on your credit scores, or you can do a short sale where you're basically kind of working with a bank to find the best possible scenario where, yes, you're not paying them the full money back, but you're getting market value and hopefully it's not a lot in between. Back in those times, they kind of forgave the difference because so many people were doing short sales. So other than a seven-year hit on my credit score, I didn't have any additional repercussions from that <laughs> short sale. And thanks for describing that. I was going to ask you about what are the repercussions whenever you do one. And so what does show up on the credit score during those seven years? Well, like I said, it's not as bad as a foreclosure. I think I probably brought me down about 150 to 175 points. Mm -hmm. I was used to being 850, really high 800 scores. And so I was in the 600s. It takes seven years to come off. Anytime you're going to apply for anything, 
You have to explain it. You have to produce all this paperwork. And I thought during that time, and I was not correct because now I know differently, that I really couldn't invest in real estate mm. during that time frame. And that really held back my investment career. And knowing what you know now, if something like that were to happen to someone and they were to say, well, Anna, I have to wait seven years before I invest in real estate, how would you navigate that conversation with them to say, eh, actually, blah, blah, blah? I would say absolutely you do not because I have learned the power of teaming up and have the power of partnerships. In addition to that, by doing partnerships, I'm able to get into larger deals. And those larger deals that are, in this case, apartment buildings, they're not necessarily looking at my credit score. That is one factor if I'm being underwritten for the loan. But what they're looking at is the value of the asset and my liquidity and various other aspects. So my credit scores really doesn't matter that much, especially if I'm partnered with people who have strong credit scores. So I needed to become like a team player and stop being an island mm -hmm. as a real estate investor. And that was a big turning point in my investing career. And I imagine, but let me know your thoughts. That's actually... If people are team players going into their career in real estate investing, there will be a less likelihood of going through a big financial hit because you're bringing the right people along with you right out of the gate. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's absolutely correct. I think we all have superpowers that mm -hmm. we excel at and we have things that we're quite mortal when it comes down to it, skill sets that we do not superpowers at. And I think that when we team up with other people who have different superpowers than us, it makes us an unstoppable team. And well, uh, it also just feels great. What are your superpowers? My superpowers are that I am a great underwriter. I can see the big picture as well as the small picture. If there is a detail in that underwriting that's off, I'm usually the person that will find it. <laughs> in a formula because I, my background is a financial programmer. I actually understand the model. So when I'm looking at underwriting, I look at a lot of underwriting for different projects that are coming in on different Excel spreadsheets. Mm -hmm. So of course, I'm going to look at the returns, but then I'm also going to look at the underlying model to try and understand the philosophy of what this model is trying to do. I mm -hmm. want to understand what is the structure of the deal? What's the structure of the partnerships? How much money is going to different parties? And what are the underlying premise of the financial model? which is different for different models. Everybody's got their own 70, 30, this pref, no pref and recapitalize back. Don't recapitalize back. There's a lot of variables. So I love getting into the details and I love solving problems. So I think that I excel on the underwriting aspect and I'm a people person. So I'm good at talking with investors as well. I would love to talk more in detail about what you just mentioned. And that is, looking at the underwriting and understanding, not intention, but just how they have the underwriting model set up. And you just mentioned a couple examples, the structure, the recapitalization, the money to certain parties. Let's pick one of them, the recapitalization. Will you just talk a little bit about that? Sure. So assuming that a project is going to have a refinance and that refinance is going to produce additional money because you've stabilized the property, you've increased the NOI, and that's your increase the value of the property. So assuming you're refinancing and taking money back, that money is supposed to go to the investors, unless you're using it to add on an additional block or something, do something like that. But my understanding is that refinance is supposed to go to the investors. Now, what does that do to the investor that put in $100,000 and you're recapitalizing back $40,000 of their money at that point. 
Do they continue with $100,000 in the project? Is their returns going forward based on $100,000 or is it based on $60,000? And that's a big difference. That is a big difference. So you're reviewing underwriting from potential partners where you all would bring your underwriting and the equity from relationships that you all have to partner with those operators. Is that the dynamic we're talking about before we that jump is, into? Yes, that is correct. Okay. So, That's so, the dynamic. Okay. Yes. So is there something that you look for in particular with recapitalization when you partner with an operator? Well, it's definitely a good thing for the general partners to have the recapitalization occur because then more money is going into the partner's pocket for the remainder of the project. There's less of the equity investment that's out with the investors. So more of the pie is for the GP. So from a GP's perspective, it's a good thing. But I'll tell you a new scenario that I've started thinking about, and I'm not sure how it's all going to pan out, where it may be something not good for the investor, and that's with opportunity zones. So with opportunity zones, there is a time frame that's at 2027 where the people that brought in capital gains, they need to pay those capital gains Either they're paying it at 100% or they've been stepped down to 90% or 85% of their basis. But some amount of capital gain they will be paying at that time. Now, many of these funds are talking about doing a refinance to give money back to the investors so that they have money readily available to pay those taxes. Well, are we recapitalizing back their money? Do they now have less money in? And how does that affect the amount of money that's going forward that will hold it for 10 years? then the capital gains on that Opportunity Zone project are tax-free to them. So I think a lot about Opportunity Zones these days because we're very invested in it. So this is a very specific refinancing situation, you see, because you're trying to solve a problem in the structure of the deal. And the deal is very specific. When you take a look at underwriting from operators – And you mentioned if there's a mistake or an issue with some aspect or detail of it, then you'll likely find it because of your financial programming background. What are a couple mistakes that you've seen in the past? Well, this is the most common thing where there is a formula that has been left over from some previous thing that was removed and a hard-coded number was put in in its place. And then that hard-coded number is just copied across. So somewhere you lose the formula. So I'm always looking for that, and it happens quite often. Will you repeat that so I make sure I understand? So often in a spreadsheet, it's usually in the pro forma area where Mm -hmm. you have a lot of rows and columns. Mm -hmm. And in there, somebody has laid this little landmine where (laughs) they did something to a formula to add a hard-coded element to it, or they removed the formula altogether and put something hard-coded in its place. So instead of pulling from a different tab, that was supposed to pull in the insurance amount, they hard-coded in the insurance amount. Mm. And then what happens in the column next to it, the column next to it is looking at the column to the left of it and applying some additional feature to it, like times 1.5, depending on what the growth, maybe it's 2.5%, and then it's going into the pro forma. Well, then the person later correctly changes the insurance amount on the other tab, but it doesn't get changed in the pro forma because it was hard coded in. So you start getting these places where you're changing things and it's not changing in the pro forma. So your, your numbers aren't correct. So that's a very common mistake because it's such a 
rookie way to do Excel spreadsheets and not understand that you never touch the formulas. You only touch the input areas. Well, so let's see that there can just be formulas that are just incorrect. I'm always having to dig into the form. It's usually, again, just somebody changed a formula in a previous thing to make it correct for the specific project that they were doing. And then the next project, they forgot that they did that. So what I always do to avoid that is I have a clean version of my spreadsheet and I always start with a clean version. That one, all of the formulas are pristine. So most of them have to do with that. But I'll tell you one of the things that I see that varies probably the most between, it's not necessarily an error, but it varies the most in between the different Excel spreadsheets I see, which is how the partnership structure is handled and the returns to the general partners. So we all are familiar with the different ratios, 70-30, 75-25, 85-15. Those all work great. But what is really different is what happens when a PREF is introduced. So in the case where you have, let's call it a 70-30-8 PREF, we're giving the investor the eight preference. They get the first 8%. And then the general partner and the limited partner are supposed to split afterwards the additional money. But what happens for the life of the project? Is there a catch-up term where the general partner is caught up so that they're making their full 30%? Even though they gave PREF to the investor, there's a catch-up at the end or as they're going along. Now, that is our favorite type because then the general partners are certainly making their fair share of the pie. If you are doing a 70-30 with an 8 PREF, you're really making, if you're not getting a catch-up, is you're, instead of making 30%, you're more making 18% of the mm-hmm. project. Mm-hmm. And it's a huge difference. And a lot of syndicators that I talk to, they don't understand that. They're like, catch-up, what are you talking about? And, of course, not all projects can support catch-up because you have to have a lot more available returns in the deal. Once you put a catch-up in, that could kill the whole deal because there's not enough in there. Based on your experience underwriting deals, what's the most challenging aspect of the underwriting process? I think the thing that I struggle with the most is the market benchmarks, making sure because I invest in so many different markets and I really want to be correct. And it's so hard to be correct 100% of the time when you're looking at market benchmarks, but understanding you've got to plug in the right data. So you have to go through a lot of due diligence to make sure that your rent comps are correct. If your rent comps are not correct, your whole deal falls apart. Once you buy the place and you can't get the rent, you thought you could get those rents and it turns out you can't, that's a terrible situation to be in. Then just the various expenses. If you don't get those expenses right. So I think that's a really critical part of underwriting and it's not easy. It sounds like it should be easy. Oh, I'll just get it from my property manager. But you need to get it from multiple sources, and then you need to keep verifying that they are correct over time. And if things are happening at your property, you need to be an instigator in terms of asset management. You need to watch the underwriting after you've purchased the property to see, are the trends going the way that you thought it would go? And if they aren't, you need to get in there and address that issue by bringing in more leads, by lowering the expenses, by making sure that you're accomplishing what you set out to do. You mentioned just a bit ago, you need to get the comps from multiple sources. Mm -hmm. What are those sources? Well, the three online source, apartments.com and Rentometer, Craigslist. So various sources like that. Then multiple property managers, not just one. 
And then the last one, which is very critical, is actually calling the competition and walking the competition and understanding what the rents are at those places and, and then experiencing what that means. So when you actually walk that unit and you're like, okay, this is what $800 a month is for this market. So you have to get personal about it and you have to actually make phone calls and do the shopping to your competition in the area. Based on your experience, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? Don't skip out on a full demographic analysis of your market and neighborhood. So we believe that cash flow may be king, but the market fundamentals are really the emperor. If you have a strong market fundamentals, the jobs, population, median household income, then you're going to weather the ups and downs of the market. Your asset will weather those ups and downs much better. So don't just look for cash. Try and find good deals in markets that have strong fundamentals. We're going to do the lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? I am. All right, let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Wouldn't it be nice to buy a piece of institutional quality, income-producing commercial real estate buildings for as little as $500? Now you can with Building Bits. Building Bits is a new platform where virtually anyone, regardless of income, can select a building leased to a major corporation with a guaranteed long-term lease. The $500 minimum with no upfront fees is available only for a limited time. There are great properties available nationwide with major tenants, so don't wait. Go to buybits.us today and pick your property before they're all sold out of the current inventory. That's buybits.us. That's buy, B-U-I, bits, B-I-T-S, dot U-S. The SEC offering circular is available at buildingbits.com. Best ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart, get the word out about their cause, and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month, then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com. And there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out. Best market fundamentals that you look for. Population growth, reduction in crime level, median household income. These are all things we look at from 2000 to 2017. We're looking for specific numbers of growth for each of those. Job growth and median house or condo value growth. And then we get down to the neighborhood level once we have the actual asset and we're looking for median household income that's between 40K and uh, 70K. We're looking for a diversity that's about 75% with lots of different types of slices making up those 75%. Median rent, we are happy with 700 to $1,000 in median rent. And unemployment rate should be no more than 2% higher than the city's unemployment rate. So whatever the unemployment rate is for the city, you don't want your neighborhood unemployment to be more than 2% higher than that. Poverty level, sorry, poverty level under 20%, but preferred under 15 What's the diversity of 75, diversity of what? The pie. So there's a diversity that looks at the makeup of all the potential pool in that neighborhood that could be renters for you. We like to see a lot of diversity versus just one type of person. In terms of ethnicity? Yes, ethnicity. Got it. So no one ethnicity makes up more than 75%. 
Yeah, and we like to see a lot of different slices within that pie, and that makes it you able to have a broader tenant base. It's going to be appealing to more types of people versus if you just have a majority of one slice of pie, then that is going to be your major tenant base, and it's a, you are reducing your attractiveness to other types of people. Best ever book you've read recently? I have to say, the best ever syndication book. It is still one of my favorites. Oh well. That means a lot coming from you and your underwriting background. That's for sure. So I, I am a big fan that. of Joe and Theo's book. Best ever deal you've done? I turned an investment that was generating $600 a month into $500,000 in tax-free money, plus a replacement investment of $6,000 a month. Okay. Say that again, please. It was generating $600 a month to right? $500,000. $500,000 in tax-free money. Tax-free money. So you did 1031. Uh huh. Ten thirty one, but it was a one twenty one exclusion. So the balance above the five hundred k was invested into a historic duplex in downtown Charleston. That's a legal Airbnb, and that generates six thousand dollars a month after expenses. Huh. What is a one twenty one exclusion? So I sold my primary house. What we did is we had our primary house in the Bay Area for sixteen years. We moved out of it because all of our kids had gone to college. We didn't need such a big house. We rented a house and we rented out the big house for two years. At that point, that is the key moment when you need to tell the tenant, "Thank you for staying. Your lease is up." And then you sell what was your primary home. It has been converted into a hybrid where it is still your primary house, but it is now also considered an investment vehicle by the IRS. So you're doing a 1031 on the amount of equity over 500,000. I'm married, so that's why it's 500 versus it would be 250 for a single person. That's the 121 exclusion, and then 1031 the additional equity to avoid paying tax on that into a like kind replacement. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction? Being too nice when I bought that Diamond Head Mississippi, I should have walked away from that one at closing. There were some signs at closing that I didn't pay attention to. And I was just too nice and bought the house anyway. Best ever way you like to give back? I love teaching. I teach free webinars weekly at multifamilyu.com. I teach underwriting. I also co-host a lot of webinars with cost seg people and lenders to, for multifamily CPAs. I like teaching people how to invest in apartments. And how can the best ever listeners learn more about what you're doing? The best place to reach me is multifamilyu.com. That's multifamily, the letter u.com. And I'm Anna at multifamilyu.com. Anna, thank you for spending some time with us and talking about your experience, how you got going, your superpower. I picture you with a cape, by the way, whenever you're talking about your superpower and underwriting and some advanced things to look for, like um, the recapitalization and, and some other things like the clawback and also. Yeah, catch yeah. up. Yeah, the catch-up, sorry. Yeah, it's catch not up. a callback, it's a catch-up. Those are two different things. And also when you look at different markets as well as neighborhoods. So really appreciate you spending time with us. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Joe. Best ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart. Get the word out about their cause and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month, then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, 
then go to besteverCauses.com, and there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one, and we'll check it out.